From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about Act 31, the legislation that required Wisconsin schools to teach about Native American history, culture, and tribal sovereignty. Then we'll look at the impact the bipartisan infrastructure law is having in the Milwaukee area. This bipartisan infrastructure law is helping to really accelerate the replacement process for uh, getting rid of these uh, uh, lead pipes, and I can say creating new jobs in the process. Plus, we'll learn about a Milwaukee character known for hanging out at Bradford Beach. A Ringo sighting is a little blessing for that day. He's this kind of beautiful human being who has carved his own existence in the world in a rather remarkable way. All that's coming up on Like Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. More than 30 years ago, Wisconsin signed a law that required schools to teach about Native American history, culture, and tribal sovereignty. It's known as Act 31. The law was created in part because of a violent controversy over Ojibwe spearfishing rights fueled by ignorance over those rights. State leaders realized that education about Native American tribes was needed in Wisconsin schools, and Act 31 was signed into law in 1989. To learn more about the history of Act 31 and where it stands today, WUWM education reporter Emily Files spoke with J.P. Leary, a UW-Green Bay associate professor and author of the book, The Story of Act 31. In this book, you say that to understand how Act 31 became law, You have to go back to the controversy around Ojibwe people's rights to spearfish in Wisconsin, what's also known as the Walleye War. So what was that controversy? It it all stems from um, really a lack of opportunity to learn about the history, culture, and tribal sovereignty of the federally recognized peoples in Wisconsin. If you were someone who the only thing you learned about Native people was from school, you didn't learn much. Your opportunities to learn were very, very limited. What happened is when the Ojibwe peoples sued to assert their rights because the state government had been interfering with their exercise for over a century, the they finally won in 1983 in a, in a case known as either as the Voight decision or as Le Couture won. So this, this controversy, this thing that many people had not known much of anything about became something that uh, was the cause of public controversy, public violence, and which I argue in the book is itself an educational outcome, a lack of opportunities to learn. So you mentioned that this goes back to the treaty rights of the um, Ojibwe people in Wisconsin. Uh, So let's talk about the treaty rights and and the treaties themselves. Why were the treaties put in place and what did they say? The the primary treaties that were land session treaties in Wisconsin among the Ojibwe people were 1837 and 1842. So what they did in those treaties, in 1837, it's also known as the Pine Tree Treaty because the United States was very interested in the timber resource. And so they negotiated with the Ojibwe people And there are different understandings of that treaty, but what's very clear is the Ojibwe people reserved the right to hunt, fish, and gather within that territory ceded. 
they retained the right to make their way of life um, as they as they had done. And in 1842, what the federal government was very interested in was copper. And again, really thinking about economic development of that new Wisconsin territory. And once again, those Ojibwe tribal leaders retained the right to hunt, fish, and gather within that territory. They reserved the right explicitly to maintain their way of life. Uh, once those treaties were ratified, once the reservations were created, there were um, a number of things the state government did to interfere with the exercise of those rights. There were people who were um, hunting or fishing off the reservation within the ceded territory that were cited for poaching. Uh, they might be um, cited. They might have their equipment confiscated. They might have their catch confiscated. They might be jailed. They might be fined. Uh, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in 1983 affirmed the continued existence of and validity of those reserved rights from treaties in 1837 and 1842. That treaty rights controversy became open and ugly and often violent, and it was termed in the news media and, and in some of the later scholarship as the Walleye War. And so one of the things that, that I'm arguing in the book is Yes, that was part of the immediate impetus for creating the instructional requirements in Wisconsin for teaching about Native people, but that it is it's part of a broader history and that it was one just maybe the most um, immediate and most sort of um, spectacular in terms of scale, spectacular in a bad way. And there was a real fear that someone was going to get killed at a Wisconsin boat landing. There were examples of um, pipe bombs and people being shot at with firearms, people being shot at with wrist rockets, people being uh, harassed, having their tires slashed, having their vehicles uh, vandalized. And just a lot of things that were harassment of people legally exercising their court-affirmed reserved rights this kind of realization about Wisconsinites' lack of knowledge about Native American tribes and treaty rights came to a head with the spearfishing controversy and the embarrassment that it caused to state leaders. So, um, and, and, and harm. I, I think it, it's sure. you know, actual physical harm, economic harm, harm to the social fabric of communities, harm to families. So um, what was the intent of Act 31? What did Act 31 um, set out to change? The piece that's often thought of as the heart and soul of Act 31 speaks to K-12 social studies curriculum, and it requires school districts to provide instruction in history, culture, and tribal sovereignty at least twice in the elementary grades and at least once in high school. And, you know, in... 2023, we look back at that and we say, well, what does provide instruction mean? But in 1989, with Wisconsin's long tradition of local control of education, provide instruction was the provide instruction about the history, culture, and tribal sovereignty of the federally recognized tribes and bands in the state was the most specific curriculum content directive issued to Wisconsin schools until that time. Because of that tradition of local control, districts can provide that instruction wherever they'd like. 
Most commonly, it's in the context of Wisconsin history in fourth or fifth grade. Most commonly in the context of um, uh, maybe U.S. history or world history in middle school. And coming up in high school, it might be in U.S. history. It might be in a civics and government class. There are at least one school, Black River Falls, that includes this content in all of their social studies offerings within the within the school district. So Act 31 was intended to provide all public school students with knowledge about Native American history and culture and um, present day issues. And so how do you think Wisconsin has lived up to that goal? Implementation has been uneven, right? And, and, and maybe that's being a bit charitable. One of the things that, that we see is difference in the view of what this was supposed to actually do. I think there were some among the, the coalition that, that created it that saw it as um, it was okay as being largely symbolic, and even the state superintendent at the time called, was saying, I wouldn't expect a whole week on this. A whole week of, of instruction on it. Right. Yeah. And so that's where I think about, like, if you want to do something meaningful as opposed to just do something, right, provide instruction can mean a whole range of things. Providing can, Provide instruction can be very, very minimal. Right. And and that minimum has never fully been defined. And so one of the things that we see come about is um, uneven implementation. Right? In, in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, a, a since-retired social studies teacher who now teaches for us at UW-Green Bay, um, Paul Ricken worked with Charity Thunder and others in the Ho-Chunk community to begin to transform what had been their initial response to Act 31. So they found a way to infuse this content into everything they were doing in the social studies curriculum. And so in the context of uh, civics, because they are located at the administrative headquarters of the Ho-Chunk Nation, they were able to go out to the tribal office building. They were able to go out and visit the tribal courts and they were able to have that firsthand interaction um, with families, communities, and nation that was their neighbors. And so I, I think that's still one of the best approaches that we see. While we have those places that are, um, like Black River Falls, really modeling great approaches, what I see in my classroom now is I do an activity on the second day of class. What's your prior, what's your prior knowledge? Whatever you learned. What have you been taught? And we got, we got to be a little bit humble about it because in some cases I'm asking them to to think back to when they were in fourth grade, when perhaps earlier. Um, and most of my students report very minimal opportunity to learn. They tend to report that way more often than not, what they learned was from mass media, not from in school. They cite Brother Bear, Pocahontas, Twilight, um, these sorts of things as their sources of information rather than what they learned from their teachers, right? 
And so it may be that it wasn't offered to them. They didn't have that opportunity to learn. Or it could be that it was taught in a way that was um, perhaps superficial and not engaging. So does it seem like Act 31 was more of a symbolic victory than a practical like change in Wisconsin? I, I think practically speaking, what Act 31 did is it provided some political cover to teachers, administrators, and school districts that wanted to do something meaningful and that helped insulate them from the backlash because they could point to that law and say, we are required to do this. I, I think it did, I think it did that. I think it created some opportunity for innovation. It created some opportunity for partnerships and conversations. I think it's been consistently under-resourced, right? that there's been this specific requirement but there's not been similar um, specific resources to support it. J.P. Leary is a First Nations Studies professor at UW-Green Bay and author of The Story of Act 31. He spoke with WUWM's education reporter, Emily Files. This week marks two years since the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. The law invested billions in infrastructure projects around the country, including many here in Wisconsin. Senator Tammy Baldwin voted for the law, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explain how this funding has impacted Wisconsin communities. Senator Baldwin, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. What are some of the notable projects in the Milwaukee area specifically that have been boosted by the bipartisan infrastructure law? Well, there's uh, several announcements that are quite recent in uh, uh, the Milwaukee area that I am uh, very excited about that are being funded by provisions in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I'm going to start with um, the recent announcement um, that we have secured $275 million in funding to clean up the Milwaukee estuary uh, to reverse decades of legacy pollution and protect our freshwater resources, uh, our public health, and frankly, our way of life. Um, Lake Michigan has um, a number of what have been deemed areas of concern. Um, and uh, this funding, uh, along with some uh, local resources, will really allow us to, as I said, reverse decades of pollution and um, and and protect that freshwater so source. Also, in uh, the subject of water, um, a big provision of the bipartisan infrastructure law deals with investments in our water infrastructure. And Milwaukee's water infrastructure includes tens of thousands of lead pipes that are still in use in the drinking water system. And this bipartisan infrastructure law is helping to really accelerate the replacement process for uh, getting rid of these uh, uh, lead pipes. And I can say creating new jobs in the process, which is um, exciting. Um, there's a big investment that we just announced of $9 million for the Port of Milwaukee that's going to help expand the uh, port's activities with regard to um, uh, 
shipment of grains um, and grain storage at the facility and, and strengthening maritime commerce. Uh, and so it, there's a lot of good news in the Milwaukee area that comes right out of this bipartisan infrastructure law. Now, when I hear infrastructure, I immediately think of transit. And as someone who uses a lot of public transit, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement here in southeastern Wisconsin. Are there projects inside of this uh, that address some of the gaps that we're seeing in transit here in Wisconsin? There are. And um, uh, several communities in Wisconsin have uh, been the uh, direct recipients of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to upgrade or uh, or uh, not just upgrade uh, uh, transit um, uh, resources, but also make them cleaner. Uh, so for example, uh, there have been several communities across the state that will be able to uh, replace combustion engine uh, buses with electric buses. Um, there's uh, an area uh, where there will be uh, solar installation to uh, power those uh, electric buses, to recharge those batteries through solar panels rather than um, other uh, sources of uh, 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 fuel sources for electricity. And um, we're seeing that uh, around the state. I would also just mention, um, which is not transit per se, but uh, talking about um, the ability to have cleaner uh, sources of transportation, improving safety for bicyclists and pedestrians and uh, focusing on, uh, you know, how do we address issues of reckless driving, for uh, example. Uh, so there are investments also uh, uh, in in improving safety for other users of our infrastructure besides uh, just uh, uh, folks who are driving motor vehicles. When we look at something like reckless driving specifically, uh, which you just mentioned, how are these funds affecting how we address uh, reckless driving in the state of Wisconsin, and especially here in Milwaukee, where it's become a major issue. So there's a provision in the bipartisan infrastructure law that um, it, uh, relates to uh, reconnecting communities that have been divided by legacy uh, uh, transportation. Like it, it, it was not unusual decades ago to put a big highway to uh, sort of split a community apart. And um, and so reconnecting communities is a, a, a big facet of this. Um, Milwaukee currently has an application in to that program for a grant that would uh, face a, a would would help a stretch of roadway that has been um, that has been the site of a lot of reckless driving to make it safer to uh, pre present opportunities for bicyclers and pedestrians um, that don't cur currently exist. And I am um, certainly strongly supporting uh, Milwaukee's uh, bid for this funding. It hasn't, um, it hasn't been awarded yet, um, but that would be an example of something that is uh, squarely focused on making uh, re reuniting communities as well as um, addressing um, the the uh, 
issues relating to reckless driving and just making um, those roadways safer for all. Do you know which uh, stretch of roadway that would be? I may have to follow up with you uh, after the fact. I have it. um, I'm just uh, I'm just forgetting it at this particular moment. I have the list of things that have already been funded in front of me and not some of the things that are in the works. (laughs) So as we look at infrastructure, I think that word can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. We've talked a bit about water infrastructure. We've talked a bit about transit. What are the other kinds of projects around the state and especially here in Milwaukee where these funds are being directed? So among um, among the things we haven't yet talked about uh, specifically are uh, boosting access to uh, affordable, high-speed internet services. Um, and, and frankly, it's, uh, it's a challenge in rural areas. It's also a challenge in urban areas. Sometimes the issue in urban areas is more the affordability issue of there might be uh, uh, the middle mile and the, the last mile already installed, but it's out of reach because of how costly it is. And um, there is a, a fund that was created to help uh, those um, with lower incomes be able to uh, take advantage of high-speed internet. And also, uh, a lot of the funding in this area is to uh, install the last mile so that people, no matter where they live, um, their their homes and businesses can have access. Because it's hard to be a full participant in the 21st century economy when you don't have access to high-speed internet. And it's, uh, you know, we saw during the pandemic, of course, in an acute fashion, how necessary uh, high-speed internet was for school, for telehealth, for uh, working from home. And uh, we want to make sure that everyone can have uh, the same opportunities. So looking back at the last two years since these funds have come and looking toward the future, what would you say have been the biggest successes of this program in your view? And and what would you say are your next priorities? Oh, so um, I would say, uh, first of all, that we're just at the start. When we made, when we passed the bipartisan infrastructure law two years ago, we recognized that these, this was the level of investment that was sort of once in a generation, once in a lifetime even, uh, and we had so neglected our infrastructure that we knew it was going to be impossible to build it back in one year or two years. So we're going to continue to see the um, investments from the bipartisan infrastructure law take place year after year after year. And um, and yet what I would say is we're off to a really strong uh, start. Simply put, it's working and it's making a real difference in the lives of Wisconsinites. And, um, you know, whether that's the road, transit, and bridge investments, um, or whether those are the uh, infra- the high-speed internet investments, or uh, investments in our water. Uh, we talked about ports, we talked about the areas of concern in Lake Michigan, but it's also essential that when we turn on our water faucet at home or at uh, school, that that water is safe and clean. And there's a lot of investment for communities that are struggling either with lead uh, pipes in their water infrastructure or contaminants like PFAS 
or uh, uh, other um, uh, other things that are uh, are not uh, conducive to uh, well-being. And so uh, those investments to clean up our drinking water, uh, to address uh, PFAS contamination, um, are also giving peace of mind to folks um, who have learned that uh, their their water was not safe. Sure. Well, Senator Baldwin, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. Senator Tammy Baldwin represents Wisconsin in the U.S. Senate. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, Bubbler Talk looks into a Milwaukee man who you can usually find at Bradford Beach. But first, we'll learn about the work the Milwaukee Centers for Independence does. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Whether it's school meals, mental health services, transportation, or other social services, you've likely come in contact with Centers for Independence, possibly without even knowing it. Founded in Milwaukee in 1938, the Centers for Independence mission is to support people with special needs to live dignified and independent lives. Lake Effect Sam Woods stopped by a Centers for Independence location on the near west side to speak with new CEO Leif Elsmo and a few others. Elsmo begins by explaining the Centers for Independence mission. First and foremost, the Centers for Independence, our vision is for healthy and hopeful communities. I think it's important to start there. I tend to think in that vision space and then how we bring that to life, right? Through our mission, which is partnering with people of all abilities to advance their total health. So we are part of the health ecosystem and delivery system here in the city of Milwaukee. And then our values, which are three, which are very important for us, we practice and walk those every day, which is to understand people, understanding people, leading success, and working together. Uh, It's a very important set of values as we look at collaboration, how we're thinking about partnering with people from Milwaukee and organizations from Milwaukee throughout the city and the county to have an impact in the lives of people and certainly to reach that vision, as I said before, of healthy and hopeful communities. So Centers for Independence does this in a lot of ways, right? You'll hear a bit today around our behavioral health, mental health work, uh, some of the work we do around um, recovery and those kinds of things. Uh, our workforce programs, we deliver meals throughout the city each and every day. Um, there are a, a number of dimensions outside of that, too, that get into how we help families think about coordinating care within their own households. We work as an advocate and as a partner around uh, creating healthy lives, right, for people with disabilities, um, families, households that are 
uh, working on creating more independent and thriving lives, right? So we do this on a daily basis throughout different parts of the city of Milwaukee, throughout the county, and frankly, throughout the state. Yeah, and I know you mentioned um, both behavioral services and nutrition services as uh, kind of two parts that you uh, support people with special needs through CFI. And we have uh, Heidi Chada and John Cianelli here to talk about those two services. And so one thing I know for me, um, as just you know, as a resident of Milwaukee that stands out about um, CFI, is just how... Um, how you all are just kind of everywhere. <laughs> yeah, like there's, you know, you do food services, mental health services, a bunch of different types of lanes that you all that you all occupy. So um, Heidi, in your role with um, CFI's nutritional services, can you talk a little bit about what you all do and how someone in the community might have already come across uh, your work without even knowing it? So we're really proud of the work we do here at Centers for Independence and all of it happens because of collaboration collaboration through the multitude, the breadth and depth of programming that we have here at Centers for Independence, and quite frankly, hundreds of partners that we make all these wonderful things happen. So Sam, you said when you go in the community, you feel like every time you turn around, you're hearing about some service that someone from Centers for Independence provides. And we're really proud of that, because what we've done over the last 85 years has truly been focusing on paying attention to what are the current and future needs in our community, and adjusting, adapting our services to make sure we're meeting that need. We serve over 24,000 people a year. We have over 30 innovative programs. I have the honor of leading a wonderful team that provides um, food, so increasing access to fresh, healthy meals to youth all across our city. So we prepare and deliver 22 to 28,000 meals every school day. So I just looked up these numbers before I walked in here today, because sometimes you forget about the um, impact you have when you're in the middle of it. Um, this year, um, as of October 31st, we've already delivered 3.9 million meals and snacks across the greater Milwaukee area. And it's not just that we're providing access to fresh and healthy meals. It's that we're providing complementary nutrition and wellness education. Um, we focus a lot on total health. And total health is about many things, socioeconomic factors, housing, employment, access to behavioral health, but also access to healthy food in a way that makes you feel comforted and like you're, you're, you're loved in your community. So as part of that, we provide complementary nutrition and wellness education to over 125 partner daycares and K-12 schools. But even cooler beyond that, or a job training program for people with barriers to employment. Whether that barrier be that you um, have been struggling with unemployment, um, you have a, a barrier such as being previously incarcerated, you need a job change. You're struggling with persistent mental illness and you want to get re-engaged quickly in the job market, we do that through our nutrition and wellness program and that each of our kitchens are training venues, paid training venues for people dealing with those barriers. And we partner with people on John Cinelli's team to really pay attention to, are our staff mentally well? Is their behavioral health wonderful? As good as it can be, how can we support them? And the people that we serve through our training programs. So you quickly begin to realize how it's about all of us working together, not just here at Centers for Independence, but with hundreds of other partners across the city. And we thank those partners for really contributing to helping all of us create a healthy and hopeful community. 
You mentioned 22,000 to 28,000 school meals per day, which is a really big number. That is hard to imagine that many sandwiches or chicken nuggets or you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but when it comes to that kind of meal and snack distribution, do you have a particular um, like target population in mind? Um, or is it just, you know, we contract with certain schools and so we get uh, meals to them and that's just it? That's a great question. Dietitians like to hear those sorts of questions. You think about the challenges we have as a county, Milwaukee County, for example, almost 21% of the youth living in Milwaukee County are food insecure, which means they don't have um, easy access to having meals every day. Um, and a really great solution for helping solve that program for our community is through the National School Lunch and Breakfast Program. Nationwide, over 29 million youth, 29 million school-age kids eat lunch at their school every day. That's an immense impact. So what we do is we try to help leverage um, what some of those resources that are available at the Department of Public Instruction and the USDA, um, partnering with schools to help them be compliant and not just meet but exceed those nutrition standards. It's a very specific meal pattern that regulates how much protein, that you have access to dried beans, peas, and legumes. I know we're all excited about that. Leafy greens, red and orange vegetables. So it's a very prescribed pattern that we must follow for our schools and early education centers. But we go above and beyond. When somebody says, here's a healthy meal for you, Think about how do you describe healthy? Sometimes it's a comparative, choice A to choice B. We decided to take a really scientific approach to that by saying we're going to partner with Green Onion and really specify which ingredients we will not allow in our food, like colorants, dyes, additives, and which items are really gonna monitor to make sure things like caramel coloring that we don't want to have added to the meals of all our kids, our kids in our city. So there's a lot of regulation around that meal, but what really matters in the end, is not that that meal is reimbursable or is like stamped with approval from a dietitian or USDA. What really matters is are we driving a healthy relationship so that youth can develop a healthy relationship with food and make good, healthy choices, the best choices they can in that moment for themselves, full stomach, open mind right? So helping really drive total health through that method. And so John, uh, Heidi mentioned uh, that your, your department works um, kind of within uh, CFI with uh, some job training, but I know you also do um, a lot of work outside of, you know, the CFI building. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, um, the behavioral services work that you lead on a day-to-day -day basis? Our, one of our main focuses in behavioral health is really about access, helping people access the right services at the right time um, when they need them the most. And so to do that, we operate services here on site, as you mentioned, in our behavioral health clinic. And we also offer services in the community uh, in two ways. One, through our some of our residential programs, and then uh, another way is through our Crisis Resource Center, which I'll specifically talk about. And then a third is our case management system where we're seeing people throughout every zip code who come to us with all sorts of needs, but we do that in their home. We go to their home. We have a teams of licensed professionals um, who are trained therapists, usually by background, who serve people um, right, right in their own communities throughout all the zip codes. 
Our crisis resource center is a good example. You know, Heidi talked about our partnerships and, you know, Leif talked about our collaboration. The crisis resource center is a perfect example of that. It's a program that we've operated for 14 years here in Milwaukee. We started out with one location on the south side and we've grown to have three now, one in each geographical area, one south, one middle, one north, serving people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. So they're literally folks who are, you know, they're, they're experiencing a crisis, some kind of emotional health challenge, and really trying to decide, like, do I need to go to the hospital? Do I need to go to the ER? Or could I go to the Crisis Resource Center for help? And I'm very proud of this statistic, mostly, you know, for the people we serve, when we started out, almost all of our referrals to the resource center came from hospitals, ERs, uh, uh, involuntary diversions. And today, about 30% of, of the people who present at the CRC are self-presenting. So, so people have learned you know, to use the Crisis Resource Center as a tool to maintain their own health. So they're coming to us early. We're able to, you know, they're met at the door with a licensed professional counselor, and um, we're able to start intervening on whatever that crisis is for that person and help them stabilize rather than, you know, it, the, the, the illness get worse and worse and worse till a person needs to go into a hospital or, or an ER. So um, we're very proud of that statistic and very proud of the people we serve as they've learned how to put the Crisis Resource Center as part of their, their safety plan. And so Leif, you know, it's a new era, at least looking at it from the outside. Usually, you know, when a CEO, um, when there's a change in CEO, you kind of see those, you know, new initiatives. Um, I know, you know, you're coming from uh, working in uh, community health in Chicago. Um, can you talk about, you know, as you're, as you're stepping into your new role at CFI, um, what's on your mind as far as changes to come or new perspectives, new initiatives that um, may look a little different from, you know, recent past the, of CFI? That's a big question, Sam. Uh, so, so I'm going to take that a couple of ways. So first, I'm very excited to join, to join the Centers for Independence as, as the CEO. It's a incredible organization with a long history of serving communities here in Milwaukee and throughout the state of Wisconsin. So I'm excited to be here. It's a return to Milwaukee for me, okay? I uh, went to college here at UWM. Uh, my f right out of college, my first year after that was in an intercultural leadership program here in this neighborhood where we're headquartered for CFI, working on economic development, community economic development. And so coming back here, though, from 30 years in the neighborhoods in and around Chicago, in public health and working on health equity. And when you hear some of what I talked about earlier in our mission and vision and what you've heard John and Heidi talk about, total health, right, inclusion, asset-based community development, how we're thinking about building on this history and tradition in communities, right, through collaboration, through collective approaches, we can get to better outcomes. That does not mean that there's not some needs here in the city, right? We are coming off of a shock, right, to our society, to our city, and people are looking to have 
healthier outcomes, have healthier life, right? It's a fact. People are struggling. We provide and have provided throughout time that access, right? When you look at health and health equity and coming from a public health background, we know that most of health or healthcare is around social drivers, right? And when you hear John and Heidi talk about the work that we're doing around employment, around behavioral health, around nutrition, around access to care, these are the kinds of things that Centers for Independence delivers. That was Laith Elsmo, the CEO of Centers for Independence, Heidi Chada, the Vice President of Employment and Career Services, and John Cianelli, Vice President of Behavioral Health. They all spoke with Leg Effect Sam Woods. We want to hear your story ideas for Leg Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash effect. There's just something about a night out at the movies. The smells, the sounds. We'll talk about that movie magic in about five minutes. But first, the Milverine isn't the only Milwaukee character who gets noticed around town. Bubbler Talk shares the story of a man named Ringo who frequents Bradford Beach. Next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Back to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Here's today's Bubbler Talk about a Milwaukee character you might recognize from Bradford Beach. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Excarat Nunez. Today, we're setting out in search of a local celebrity. If you visited Bradford Beach in the last 60 years, you've likely seen a man who goes by the name of Ringo. Hi, my name's Ringo. He's an older man with shoulder-length blonde curly hair who's usually sitting at the beach, swimming in the lake, or picking up trash off the shore. But one listener hasn't had a Ringo sighting in a while. They asked, What happened to Ringo from Bradford Beach? After some Google searching and emailing, I found the man himself. We met, of course, at Bradford Beach. Even though it was a cold, snowy day, Ringo still looked at home along the shore. He calls this place his office. I used to collect a lot of fossils and rocks, but I kind of quit doing that because I got too much stuff. And days like this, I'd come down here and socialize, have some potato chips and listen to music and read a book. Ringo says he was born and raised in Milwaukee and has been coming to Bradford Beach since the early 60s to swim and hang out. Ringo says he and his friends would also spend time together at Lake Park playing tabletop games. One of his closest friends was another Milwaukee character, the late Dick Bacon. He's a, one of the most interesting guys around. He was set on a day like this, he'd put these reflectors up in the middle of winter. I used to go in there and play Scrabble with him a lot of time, but I usually wait till the snow is gone. <laughs> Ringo spends a lot of time at Bradford Beach. But he's not just a beachgoer. He's an artist. Deborah Bramer is the owner and director of the Portrait Society, 
a contemporary art gallery in the Third Ward. She held an exhibition of Ringo's artwork in 2009. She says Ringo would pick up trash to help keep the beach clean and often save some items for his artwork. He'd make collages of the objects he'd find and put them together in shadow box frames. Lots of big lighters are left on the beach. Broken glass. You can see in this collage there's this pattern made of cut-up flip-flops. Deborah says Ringo's collages can almost be looked at as a diary entry of his daily routines and reflects some of the positive impacts he's had on the beach. He wasn't just going to the beach to sun and play Scrabble with Dick Bacon. He also was a steward of the beach. Todd Goronsky echoes that. He helped lead the revitalization of Bradford Beach from the early 2000s until 2014. I met him at one of his and Ringo's hangout spots, Hooligans. I always referred to Ringo as my trusty Viking. Goronsky says Ringo helped him transform the popular beach into a family-friendly place with volleyball and tiki bars. Ringo was with me almost every step of the way to do like some of the most ridiculous things, like dig a hole, clean up a closet. He would help me with these big events I would have, like literally all of them, everything from Pro Beach Volleyball to the Strongman events to a music event. He was there. So what's Ringo up to now? Over the last few years, he says he's had some health issues that have stopped him from riding his bike. And he hasn't created any new artwork either. But he's hoping to get inspired again as he keeps picking up objects washed ashore. If I can help it, I'd rather see it get a little more life than just wind up in a landfill, because that's where most of that stuff winds up. Despite the setbacks, he continues to regularly visit Bradford Beach. His friend Deborah hopes others appreciate the small ways people like Ringo care for their communities. I always feel like a Ringo sighting is a little blessing for that day. He's this kind of beautiful human being who has carved his own existence in the world in a rather remarkable way. For Bubbler Talk, I'm Excarette Nunez. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Palamos Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubblertalk to submit your question. You can see Ringo's art at the Portrait Society from November 17th through January 9th. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM. You can hear it every Thursday here on Lake Effect and on Fridays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Keep an eye out for the web article all about Ringo Friday morning. WUWM is collecting your most memorable sounds for our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee. On today's episode, we're going to the movies. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. Today in our Sounds Like Milwaukee series, we go to the movies. Small butter. At the Oriental Theater, you hear all kinds of things. Things that tell you you're about to have a good time. It's Monday night and people are filing in to catch the next screening of The Holdovers, which just opened last weekend. It stars Paul Giamatti as this grumpy prep school teacher. He has to stay on campus over Christmas break to babysit the students who have nowhere to go. My boyfriend said one of his friends saw it and that it was really good. So I just decided to take myself out to a movie. I love that you're doing that on Monday night. Ellie Gokin is a grad student at UWM. She finished a paper for a class earlier today and decided to treat herself to a movie. 
This friend said it was kind of like a return to like Dead Poets Society kind of movies, and I really enjoyed that one, so I'm hoping for a similar kind of like vibe for this one. Are there any um, sounds or sights when you walk into the theater that you're like, I'm about to have a great time? Of course, there's always a the smell of popcorn. Um, I remember seeing Barbie, and the whole theater was just like crazy, just like people talking, seeing everybody's outfits. It was always so fun, so. But for people who work at the theater, all this cinema magic can easily become background noise. Uh, my name is Malik Riddle. I am the lead assistant cinema manager here at the Oriental Theater. Riddle says he doesn't even eat popcorn anymore. It got old. But there is one sound that pulls him out of it and reminds him how special this place is. The sound when we scan someone's ticket is incredibly satisfying. So I always like it when everything works properly and once we scan somebody and you get a really happy noise people walk in. What do you love about that sound? Like what does it tell you? Well one for me it tells me that everything's working properly so that means I don't have to troubleshoot anything but it also means that it's like the signifier that people can go in and they can enjoy their movie or show or whatever they're here for. And if something's wrong when he scans a ticket? If something's wrong then I'll hear this. Not as, not as happy, so. Definitely not, we don't like to hear that. No. <laughs> Riddle has worked with Milwaukee Film since 2016. He says the singing scanner has been greeting moviegoers since the Oriental reopened in 2021, after closing during the pandemic for a major renovation. And you just like being there at the gate to usher people into like a great film experience? Correct, yeah, I think whenever, Sometimes when you're here every day for work, you kind of forget that you work in a really cool place. But when people walk in and they start looking around at the entire environment, you get reminded that, oh, this is a very special place to be. Process, order, delight. The beat says it all. Lena Tran, 89.7, WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We want to hear what your favorite sounds are in the community. There are instructions on how to be a part of Sounds Like Milwaukee at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Emily Files, Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, Taryn Powell, Lena Tran, and Chuck Kornbach from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon when we'll tell you about the Lost in the Middle podcast, which explores centrist ideas in a highly polarized society. Plus, we'll hear from a mermaid in Milwaukee with a mission to conserve our freshwater ecosystems. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take us on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.